0: If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, August the 21st, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. My guest today in our studio on the campus of Stanford University is Dr. Michael J. Boskin. Michael Boskin is the Wolford Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Tully M. Friedman Professor of Economics at Stanford. In addition, he advises governments and businesses globally. Dr. Boskin served as chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, at CEA for short, from 1989 to 1993, when he helped resolve the third world debt and saving and loan financial crises. His CEA was rated by the Council for Excellence in Government as one of the five most respected agencies in the federal government. Michael, it's an honor to have you back on the podcast.
1: My pleasure, Bill.
0: Speaking of honors, you received a high one in July, which probably won't get recorded, but it was an honor, I thought. You were mentioned in a column by George Will. This is why it's an honor. When you read George Will columns, who does he tend to quote? Baseball players, dead British politicians, but in this case, he quoted a very living economic, economist. Here's what he wrote. It's a July 31st Washington Post column. I'll read you the passage. Quote, watching democratic presidential aspirants is like watching a century go the 1919 World Series when discerning spectators thought, some of the White Sox are trying to lose. Michael Boskin, chairman of President George H.W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors and currently at Stanford's Hoover Institution, pays the Democrats the injurious compliment of taking seriously their aspirations, which are characterized by a disqualifying flippancy. Mr. Will then cites Medicare for all universal basic income, the Social Security tw- two, uh, 2100 Act, and the Green New Deal. Michael, do you indeed take these aspirations seriously?
1: <laughs> yes, I do. I think that it would be a mistake to just write them off as total flippancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a long history in presidential campaigns of ideas that were floated during the campaign, policy proposals made, becoming eventually working their way into the political process. And after considerable adjustment in various ways, maybe toned down, sometimes exaggerated even, uh, sometimes you get a cousin of what was presented, not the real thing, but these often make their way into law, and I, would, I think it's important to appreciate uh, just how radical and how numerically, uh, scientifically, and economically illiterate these proposals really are.
0: Let's go through them. In fact, first I want to quote from a very fine essay that you wrote that appears on the hoover.org website. Here's your passage, Michael. Quote, many of the left's recent policy proposals are not only quite radical, but scientifically, economically, and numerically illiterate. Let's not go through them one by one. Let's start with Medicare for All, which abolishes private employer-based health care plans, roughly 180 million Americans depend upon, replacing them with a government-run style payer system similar to Canada, Western Europe. What's wrong?
1: Well, there are a variety of things. First of all, uh, the the main proposals, Bernie Sanders, which has been endorsed by most of the other candidates, would have uh, the government eliminate all private insurance, take over everything, and a Medicare for All uh, with no co-pays, no deductibles, uh, with the idea being that somehow it was supposed to be emulating European-style uh, government-run health care. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on the uh, honest side about that, the Europeans do spend less, uh, a smaller fraction of their GDP on health care than we do, a few percentage points less, uh, but it's also pretty clear that they get less for it. Um, apples to apples comparisons by Hoover Scott Atlas shows that you wind up with very long waits even for urgent care like uh, brain tumors and uh, heart heart issues, uh, and you uh, wind up with lower success rates on, on the major diseases. However, uh, it's not just that uh, when you look at and it's not just the huge total cost of it all, which is estimated to be thirty two to thirty four trillion dollars for the first ten years alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a variety of other interesting things. First of all, if you're going to cover people who aren't covered, you're going to add a demand. If you're going to have no copays and no deductibles compared to today's heavily private uh, uh, employer-based system, which has copays and deductibles for most people, copays say 20 percent or so for in in network, larger out-of-network, there's going to be a huge insf- influx of demand. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that's the good news. The bad news is without a huge expansion of supply of doctors and hospital beds and the like. What are you going to have? You're going to have tremendous cost pressures. You're going to have to have massive rationing. You're going to make service much worse for current Medicare recipients, the elderly, and and everybody who's on private plans, union or employer plans. Uh, So that's part one. Part two, uh, you get into even more problems because uh, the way Medicare works, and a major reason it's popular, is that most of the cost is paid by taxpayers. Seniors pay. Uh, part for prescription drugs and part for outpatient, uh, but basically much of it is subsidized by taxpayers. Well, if everybody's in the system, there's nobody outside the system to subsidize people inside the system. Right. All you get is massive cross-subsidies determined by politicians and bureaucrats, not by market forces or by individual choices with their doctors. Then on top of that, you're going to wind up in a situation where if the cost savings these people try to project are true, that you'll get current Medicare rates, which are on average about 40% less than private employer uh, plan rates, you're going to wind up creating a situation where many hospitals will fold. They'll be out of business. They can't afford to do that. They'll lay off massive numbers of people. Service will deteriorate immensely. Mm -hmm. There's just no way around that. You just can't get away from the law of supply and demand. Uh, you know, sure, there's some waste in the system. Sure, we should try to improve, improve productivity and with the use of technology and other things. And there are some improvements that can be made at the margin. But you're not going to save 40, 40%. That's absurd. You're going to drive a cause a lot of hospitals to fold. People in the end will wind up being denied care, mm-hmm. not get care.
0: Right. Uh, let's now talk about universal basic income. UBI for short, which is championed by uh, Andrew Yang, the not an office holder, but a Democratic presidential candidate, a businessman, I believe. Uh, UBI uh, would pr- offer a thousand dollar a month universal basic income, uh, but that's kind of the tip of the iceberg, Michael, in terms of government money being uh, thrown about. There's a proposal for a thousand dollar government baby bond for each newborn. I think that's a Cory Booker idea. Uh, free universal preschool, free community college, or even free four year public college, uh, complete forgiveness of student debt, which is about a trillion six, I believe. Uh, what else, cash reparations for slavery dependents, government rent subsidies, when rent exceeds 30 percent of income, spent, spent spent. What's wrong with UBI and what's wrong with these various proposals?
1: Well, first of all, let's let's posit mm-hmm. the, the legitimate concern for people uh, es- espoused by the people espousing these radical proposals. Right. There certainly has been a rise in inequality uh, over the last 30 years. It's clear that there are some people who are falling through the cracks and could use some help. But we need really to distinguish in all these things people who are legitimately frail and need support and are going to need it probably continuously and a subset of people who will at any point in time temporarily need help if they lose their job or they have a health health episode, et cetera. But we also have to have systems where we provide incentives for people to work develop the individual responsibility and accountability and care for themselves and their family. So I am much more in favor of policies that try to enhance skills, provide opportunity in the labor market and things of that sort, Mm -hmm. rather than dose a bunch of people with money, give up on them, not worry if they stop working. Indeed, one of the great uh, uh, disasters of the Green New Deal is they want to give everybody everything, quote, whether or not they're willing to work. Uh, well, it's just an invitation for people to stop working, and the right. suggestion that that's actually what goes on in Europe seems to be quite out of date, because if you look at what the European social welfare states are doing, they're all trying to retrench. The Dutch, remember the Dutch disease, was long cons- the Dutch were long considered the avant-garde of the cradle-to-grave welfare state. They now require welfare recipients to take any job within a three-hour commute.
0: Okay, uh, let's now talk about the Green New Deal, a litmus test for Democratic presidential candidates. Most notably supported by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The Green New Deal proposes over 12 years requiring 100% of power be provided by renewables, upgrade all existing buildings to full energy efficiency, eliminate greenhouse gas emissions in transportation sector with zero emission vehicles and high-speed rail, eliminate greenhouse gas emissions and pollution from agriculture. Sounds good enough, but what's wrong with it, Michael?
1: Well, again, it's one of these things where they take um, a legitimate concern, Mm -hmm. the environment, climate issues, that we certainly have, should have a concern about potential uh, climate risks and Mm -hmm. rising temperatures that will cause uh, various issues, Uh, some good but many bad. Um, And I don't have much truck with people who say it's all a hoax Mm -hmm. or people who think the world's about to incinerate and we have to just stop everything. Um, The Green New Deal people kind of tend to be the alarmists in the latter. Mm-hmm. But if you just look at leaving aside the immense cost, likely tens and tens of trillions of dollars over 10 years, number one, and you look at, look at the immense disruption and the massive disruption that would occur and the massive unemployment for lots of people working in traditional jobs mm-hmm. or uh, fossil fuel related jobs or in energy using jobs, for example, in high tech we have to, have a lot of electricity where you don't all have renewables right now if you leave all that aside just look at the sheer numerical illiteracy of it all so they they want to upgrade every building in the united states energy efficiency within 10 12 years depending on who you're talking to joe biden half of them uh he's kind of bought into half of ridiculous which is still ridiculous (laughs) uh seems to be his proposals but in any event what does that mean well, nobody seemed to bother to add up how many buildings there were in the United States. And if you add up the number of single-family homes, apartment buildings, commercial buildings, industrial buildings, farms, state, local, and federal government buildings, including schools, in round numbers, there's 100 million buildings. So they're basically saying they're going to retrofit over 4,000 buildings an hour. It takes two. It's just absurd. Right. I mean, it's often the case, so to give an example, to put solar panels on a roof of a, of a home generally takes two to three months, including permitting. And they're going to do four, over 4,000 an hour right. for 10 years. Uh, it's, it's, it's often the case that presidential candidates or presidents engage a certain amount of hyperbole. One can even say that President Trump has more or less regularized that, although he's far from the only one. Remember, President Obama was stopping the sea rise. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. Lots of other uh, distortions and exaggerations have come from many, uh, from almost every president. Some unknowingly, uh, some fact checks weren't done carefully. But they're generally on the order of magnitude of, will double the size of something, not a thousand times too large, <laughs> okay? Uh, so. The thing is numerically literal. Let's go through a few other ones. They want to eliminate fossil fuels in agriculture. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, at the moment, barring tremendous breakthroughs in technology in very short order, which is likely not to occur that quickly, you'll wind up eliminating insecticides and herbicides and fertilizer because fertilizer is made with a process that utilizes fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they didn't bother to think about what that might mean to crop yields. So if you look at... um, studies of crop uh, fertilizer's effect on crop yields in the United States, for wheat it's about 70% of an increase and for corn 100%. So taken literally, doing what they want, would cause massive malnutrition starvation worldwide because of a tremendous shortage of food globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you could magically come up with, uh, not only invent replacements for this, but they were cost effective and you could disseminate them through the vast agricultural sector. On the high-speed rail, one need only look at California's uh, uh, greatest boondoggle in history till Gavin Newsom more or less pulled the plug on it, saving Jerry Brown's legacy, On the, by the way, in doing so. Uh, so Jerry owes him a big thanks for doing that, getting him out of that pickle. Um, but after basically a decade, massive funds being wasted, massive malfeasance the, and... Uh, and uh, heroic assumptions that they would have a high-speed rail system that was faster and safer than any in the world, Mm -hmm. leaving out the fact that almost every high-speed rail system loses money in the world, um, leaving out the fact that they hadn't figured out how to drill through seismically risky areas in the Hatchapy Mountains and on and on and on. The thing wound up being several times the cost that was projected, And eventually they had to slow it down by using a lot of existing rail to get the cost only two or three times the original projection. So it's now mixed-speed rail, and finally was partially killed by Gavin Newsom. Uh, That's likely to occur in many other instances as well, although there may be in the northeast enough density where it would make sense. That's the one place. Um, On zero-emission vehicles, uh, first of all, the current zero-emission vehicles are not zero emissions. There may be zero coming out of the tailpipe, you have to produce these things. Right. There's a lot of plastics in them. Well, plastics are from fossil fuels, and that reduces weight to increase mileage. You have butyl rubber tire liners, which are from fossil fuels. You have having to produce the battery and produce the car, the steel, etcetera, And that it's that's energy intensive, and in, the sh- in any in any near-term future, a fair amount of that will come from fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. So Bjorn Lomborg, who's kind of the most serious uh um high, high-profile environmentalist trying to do some, cares about the environment, do rigorous cost-benefit analysis, concludes that most, uh, most electric vehicles today are no more uh, carbon-friendly uh, than uh, at least high-mileage uh, high diesel and, uh, and gasoline cars. I could go on and on with stuff like that, but it's just um, basically a fantasy you can do it that fast. Let me give you an idea of what the basic problem of the whole thing is. Mm-hmm. The energy infrastructure and production and demand is so vast that all the analogies of well, my neighbor has solar; we can all have solar. That'll solve the problem. Just are off by many orders of magnitude. So a big ballyhooed event is the Tesla Gigafactory for batteries in Nevada. That Nevada paid a lot to get them to move there. Subsidies. Um, and great, I'm all for doing everything that makes sense in renewables, and I think that they're important and w- will continue to grow, and we should be moving in that direction, although I'm for getting rid of subsidies once an industry's up and running rather than uh, force-feeding it um, subsidies. In any event, uh, what does that mean? So they're going to produce enough batteries and packs, et cetera, for half a million electric vehicles a year. How much energy is that? Okay, if you take the B T U equivalent, British Thermal Unit equivalent, mm-hmm. how long do you think it would take the fracking in the Permian Basin to produce the equivalent of that what the gigafactory produces in a year? This ballyhooed immense breakthrough. Okay, ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay, <laughs> so it's just the scale. I'm not belittling it. Right. I'm just saying it's going to take a long time as the enter- as these things improve, as auto dealers bring out more. Uh, more electric cars, et cetera, as the infrastructure gets developed gradually. That's all a good thing. It's just people are wildly optimistic about how large and how fast this will grow.
0: You uh, mentioned the word belittling, and I think that's important because the pushback on some of these ideas, especially the Green New Deal, is to mock it. Um, It comes out, for example, and before you know it, we're in a conversation about cow methane. Yeah. Um, The same thing with Medicare for all. You just mock it. You ridicule it. There has to be an intellectual counterpunch by Republicans, Michael. You can't beat something with nothing, and Republicans, I think especially on health care, have struggled for the past decades in part because the GOP has not been able to offer its own vision as to what to do. It's a very funny thing. If you want to tie-tongue Democrats, talk about crime. If you want to tie-tongue Republicans, talk about health care. As you look at these ideas, what are some of the sensible Republican counters?
1: Well, I think there are a variety of things that could and should be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number one, uh, I think we've moved to the point or virtually a a very large percentage of the country agrees that there ought to be available low-cost, catastrophic insurance for people in the event they have a major disease. They have large expenses. We don't want them and their families wiped out. We don't want the rest of their life and their families' life ruined, et cetera. Um, So I think having uh, widely available plans like that with government uh, reinsurance pools and things of this sort Deal with uh, those cases, mm-hmm. uh, and which would deal with the pre-existing conditions problem. Um, there are a lot of things that could be done to make um, prices more transparent, mm-hmm. so people understood what they were being charged and why. Right now, a lot of this winds up being settled well after the fact. You wind up with a bill and. It charges you $25,000 for something, and your insurance company pays $2,000, and you pay one hundred dollars and you're kind of perplexed at all this, although worried that if you ever have to pay the full retail freight, you're going to be in very bad shape. So I think uh, pricing transparency is something that is uh, widely appreciated and, and should be-we uh, should do a lot more of. We should be having um, uh, the ability to buy policies across state lines to allow smaller groups and to buy into uh, bigger coverage with association plans, et cetera, get the advantage of those things mm-hmm. and the like. Right. Um, and we can rethink how we do the subsidies through the tax system. I think all that makes sense um, and could cover virtually everybody, but if, if an individual mandate is not going to be required, uh, there are people who, who will not get covered will not choose to, young, healthy people assume they don't need it and rather mm-hmm. take the money and spend it today rather than buy the insurance premium. If that's the case, uh, you'll wind up having to have some backup for them. And the interesting thing is there's not much talk about that. There is a backup for all these people. Since 1986, um, hospitals have been required to treat people, right. so even, including illegal immigrants, by the way, who show up on, on their doorstep. So that's number one. But, of course, the cost of doing that, some of those people get care too late, okay? Uh, But when you look at what's actually happened from the attempts to uh, expand uh, medical coverage, for example, the Obamacare expansions, the best careful studies by people who weren't exactly looking for this, they're they're respected, Probably, my guess is they're Democrats, but I wouldn't know. I don't know their politics. They're certainly not... uh, uh, considered conservative economists, found that there have been no, there's there been no impact on health outcomes. Now, maybe too early to tell, maybe over time it will, and hopefully if it stays, it will do that. Right. But uh, the, if the fact of the matter is there's a lot of discussion about this that winds up not really dealing with the facts and the reality. And we've been gradually losing our ability to have a better fact-based discussion. And I think Republicans in particular Need to get back to that because you can only get, as you indicated, you can only get so far by mocking your opposition. You can peel off the people who are willing to settle for that simplistic a uh, right. retort to a, a plan, but there are other people who would really like to know more, and those people are not being well served by either party at the moment.
0: And along those lines, Michael, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Green New Deal and what would be a Republican counter to dealing with climate changes, environmental matters. A great man here at the Hoover Institution, George Schultz, is of course, obsessed with climate change. It is his passion at this point in his life. You've thought this through. What, what strikes you as a sensible approach?
1: Well, first of all, I think you have to accept the, the, the uh, uh, likely conclusion that the earth is warming. Right. Uh, it is likely that whatever the history of it all is, that humans are contributing to the risk in the future. Mm-hmm. And that it's a good thing uh, w- under reasonable cost right. for us to be slowing emissions. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the physics and the climate science of it all is the effect on the temperature depends on global emissions. Right. So the very first thing you have to realize is that what the U.S. does by itself will have a minute effect unless big polluters like China, China and India, India right. who are – scheduled to be producing a lot more, and who under the Paris Climate Agreement have no limits on what they do till uh, after 2030, and that's all voluntary, Um, if they're not brought, if they're not actually doing a lot, then there'll be very little impact. But given that, it seems to me the best solution is the typical economist solution to tax something that produces what's called a negative externality, like simple example is congestion. If you jump on the uh, Bay Bridge, I mean, when your car, your car, you you hop on the Bay Bridge in your car uh, at rush hour, you're slowing everybody else down. So you're imposing a cost on everybody else in addition to your own cost in that congestion. And so the toll should be higher. We see this peak load pricing go on in some electricity in central London uh, f- to deal with congestion and so on. And so the analog of that would be a carbon tax. Mm-hmm. Um, or a, a tax on greenhouse gases right. that started small and could grow gradually over time if indeed the science warranted it and it looked like things were proje- the projections were correct, that things are heating up and, uh, and could be adjusted accordingly. Uh, the revenue from that, however, should be returned to people mm-hmm. so it's not just a money-grabbing machine for the government to expand right. spending, which is what most of the energy-type taxes in Europe have been used for. Uh, That being said, um, there are different arguments about ways that should be done. My own view is that to really sustain support for doing something on the environment, you really have to have a solidly growing economy. The more extreme environmentalist view is you should shut the economy down because that's all bad, generating all pollution and so on and CO2 emissions. and that, I think, is just backwards, because if you look at popular support for uh, dealing with environmental issues, even before you get to the issue of how much it costs and what you're willing to pay to do it, are you willing to pay higher uh, energy prices, are you willing to um, uh, pay taxes to subsidize something, mm-hmm. even before you get to that, uh, support basically is nonexistent in difficult economic times. Uh, Seventy percent of people say they care about climate change. Most of them really wouldn't pay very much to deal with it. They think it's somebody else's problem. Mm-hmm. But in, uh, in a recession, that number drops to insignificance. Uh, for example, in the last recession, um, out of 17 items, climate cha- dealing with climate was rated 16th after moral decay and crime.
0: I'd like to run through a little history with you, Michael, and what time I have left with you in this podcast. And I want to talk about the history of tax cuts in election cycles. Yeah. Um, this has been a confusing week in Washington, a confusing week in the Trump White House. A lot of weeks of confusing the Trump White House. This one particularly so on the matter of economics. Uh, earlier this week, Michael, it was reported that the president wants to um, revisit uh, the payroll tax. He possibly wants to cut the payroll tax. White House promptly denies the president, wants to cut the payroll tax. The president comes out and says, I'm interested in the payroll tax. And then he sweetens the offer by saying, I also want to look at indexing capital gains. At which point the president comes out on the White House lawn today. We're doing this podcast on Wednesday, so this is a Wednesday morning press avail on the White House lawn. And says, I don't want to do a payroll tax, and I don't want to index capital gains, but I want to do a middle class tax cut. So we'll talk in a minute about his options, but I want to walk you through, Michael, what you experienced when you were in the Bush White House. And the year is 1992. The president gives a State of the Union address in February, and he offers an economic stimulus plan. He then requests Congress to approve it by March 20th of that year, which of course Congress does not. It's Democratic control. They're not going to work on the president's deadline. So the Democratic Congress instead, Michael, passes a tax cut of its own. The tax cut was a temporary tax credit, $200 for individuals, $400 for a couple, for middle-class earners for two years. And to pay for it, they raised taxes on higher-end earners, uh, raising their rate from 28.5% to 38.5%. That was a Democratic proposal. The president said, I'm going to veto it if you do it, and they did it anyway. It was hardball politics, Michael. Uh, Dick Kephart and Tom Foley ran around and had to twist about 30 arms of Democratic congressmen to get a majority to get it out. The president indeed lives up to his word. He vetoes the measure. The House fails to override. Not only did they fail to override it, Michael, they didn't even get a majority vote on it. It lost 215 to 211. 52 Democrats voted against it, 77 shy. We now fast forward to February 2011. Barack Obama, he calls for a cut in the corporate tax. He wants to reduce the top rate from 35% to 28%. This is in response to Mitt Romney wanting to cut taxes as well. So back and forth in a presidential campaign, like a tennis match. But again, there's a poison pill inside the Democratic counter. The president wants to establish a minimum tax on multinational, a multinational corporations' foreign earnings, which the Republican House now says is dead on arrival, and indeed it is. Here's the question. Here's the point, Michael. Tax cuts and election cycles—they seem to be partisan-designed. They're messy. It's a question of whether politicians are offering lip service to cutting taxes or if indeed they're serious about trying to help the economy. The question to you, Michael J. Boskin, is if Donald Trump is serious about juicing the economy, actually does he need to juice the economy, but if he is, what should he be looking in the way of tax relief?
1: Well, let me start by talking about the state of the economy, which Mm -hmm. by all accounts is still pretty strong, but with risk growing.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned a few minutes ago about a growing economy. Can you put a numerical value to that?
1: Well, the historical growth rate of the U.S. since World War II through many ups and downs, this includes big declines in deep recessions in 1981-2 and Mm -hmm. 1973-4 and in 2008-9, is about 3%. Uh, The recovery from the Great Recession of 2008-9 was the slowest since World War II, averaging about 2%. The recoveries from the other two deep recessions I just mentioned were over 4% for many years. So we had a half-paced recovery. The last couple of years, that growth has picked up. Uh, last quarter was down a little bit, but it had been. Uh, there are many quarters where we've been at 3%. We had, had not had three consecutive quarters of 3% growth since 2005 till the early Trump uh, presidency. And I think that a fair amount of the credit should go to the corporate tax reform I was not a big fan of the personal tax reforms, but Mm -hmm. the corporate tax reform was way overdue. Our corporate tax rate was the highest in the OECD and was a big problem on the location of investment. That's number one. And also the rollback and stopping the onslaught of new regulation, which had uh, really uh, gone into high-gear overdrive, micromanage, starting to rival Soviet-style diktats, Uh, in the Obama years, and Mrs. Clinton had promised to do even more. Uh, So that, I think, was a big part of the response uh, in 2017 and 2018, especially, of uh, doing better. Um, However, the labor force is growing more slowly than it did through much of the uh, post-World War II era, Mm -hmm. and the growth rate of the economy is roughly the growth rate of the labor force plus the growth rate of productivity output per worker. So you have more workers working more or more hours or more productively. Right. Uh, and um, and with the labor force growing more slowly because the baby boomers are retiring and they were a especially large cohort, um, that means our, our potential is probably down to two and a half. Many people think that uh, in the forecasting community at the Fed, private forecasters think, and the CB, Congressional Budget Office, think that our, our potential is really two or slightly below. I think that better policies can get it up. And that may seem like a pretty trivial difference to two versus two and a half or 1.8 versus two and a half to three, uh, but it's really the difference compounded over a generation between an economy and a society that's considered successful and one that's considered sick.
0: Very good. Uh, the two items the president reportedly supposedly was looking at the payroll tax and indexing capital gains. Um, payroll tax is politically sexy. You're going after people's paychecks, putting money in their pockets. Indexing capital gains? Well, now you get into wealth argument.
1: Well, there's some interesting history in all these things before I get back to the politics. The history is simply that if you look at all the uh, fiscal uh, policy changes in the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation Development of the, all the rich countries right. in the post-World War II era, Um, tax changes have been much more powerful in the economy than spending changes, despite liberal Keynesian orthodoxy that we should spend more and that will help. Um, So if you're uh, trying to stimulate the economy, lower taxes have done better than higher spending. If you're trying to consolidate a budget deficit, cutting spending does less harm than raising taxes. Um, And the, the best way to stimulate the economy would be Number one, to have lower marginal tax rates, which also then mean that people's incentives to work and save and invest and innovate uh, increase, um, and to hold out the prospect that in the future, gradually spending growth will be slowed. That would be, the, in my view, the most potent stimulus to the economy. But the politics are very difficult in election year when you have divided government. Uh, that sometimes works, but you mentioned senior Bush. Uh, the Democrats had a 93-seat majority in the House and a 14-seat majority in the Senate. Mm -hmm. So it was very clear he was not going to get what he wanted, um, although he wanted to indicate he knew the economy needed some help and he had ideas about how to do it. And I think if they had offered something reasonable, they might have made some sort of a compromise. Matter of fact, they might have even done some of what each wanted and uh, and hope that helped the economy. Uh, That being said, uh, in the current environment, it's pretty clear that, the democrats in the house would not do the go straightforwardly do the things that president trump has been talking about mm-hmm. they would probably go to court to stop the indexing of capital gains right that's a legal issue on whether indexing means you adjust the sales um, you adjust the sales price and the cost basis to right. account for changes in inflation over time between when you bought and sold an asset.
0: There's also a question, Michael, of if the president has the executive authority to do this. That's Arizona right. Requires there, there, are,
1: there are conflicting opinions yes. about that, and there have been conflicting legal opinions. Mm-hmm. We looked at that when I was in the White House, and uh, our, the Treasury Legislative Council, uh, the, the Treasury lawyer said that, that we did not. Um, but there have been people who have a different point of view. It's one of these things where the lawyers argue back and
0: All forth. All it's going full circle. I think William Barr actually was uh, someone who took a look at it during the yeah, Bush 41 administration. That,
1: that's right. He yeah. became, was acting, and then, uh, de- then became a regular attorney general, full attorney general, um, and did a great job, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, then we, um, uh, so that's on indexing capital gains. On a payroll tax cut, that's more friendly to Democrats. Indeed, President Obama had um, a partial little t- payroll tax cut um, early in his administration. President Bush had some temporary tax relief. But these temporary give people 100 bucks or 200 bucks, or whatever it happens to be mm-hmm. uh, type of things tend, tend not to actually do very much. The history has they've not been very uh, effectual in helping the economy. So while there are risks to the economy, it's doing pretty well at the moment. Unemployment's the lowest in 50 years for people. Uh, Traditionally, uh, groups with traditionally have higher unemployment rates for disadvantaged for various reasons in the labor market. Minorities, teenagers, et cetera, they're at historic lows. However, growth is slowing abroad. Germany may well be in recession. Britain may be heading into a recession. Uh, China has slowed substantially. And probably the best thing that Trump could do right now, if it could be done, and I think it's probably gonna be very difficult in short order, Uh, to uh, reduce the overhang of the tariffs and the trade war on the economy. Um, He tends to think that isn't hurting us very much, uh, if at all. Um, And he's certainly right that it's time we confronted China. It's overdue. He's right about that, if I don't always agree with the way he does it. Um, That being said, when you think about how to resolve it, you have to find a a sensible solution that saves both President Xi and China and President Trump here some face Mm -hmm. in the thing. So they both get something they want and we get a better deal. That's hard to imagine is going to happen anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's an issue. On the payroll tax cut, he has a shot, perhaps. Um, There are issues of how that deals with Social Security because payroll tax revenue goes in the Social Security Trust Fund. So there are some technical complications but Democrats have tended to be much more favorable to payroll tax cuts than to income tax cuts because so many people in the bottom uh, quarter or third of the income distribution have been removed from the income tax rolls and pay no income taxes. Many even get money back from the earned income tax credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in that sense, the payroll tax cut, it's a broader swath of the population, a broader swath of the middle class, and Democrats have traditionally been in favor of that. On the current politics, though, you'd have to think it's gonna be pretty, uh, pretty difficult for them to conceive, given their left wing base and uh, and its power, of giving Trump any sort of any sort of win. So I think it'd be hard to negotiate something.
0: You are not a Californian by birth, Michael. You're a Californian by circumstance. You moved here from New York, right?
1: Yes, when I was five, but my parents did not give me a vote. No. Uh, (laughs) Have you ever surfed? Surfed. Surfed. Um, I've tried to surf, but I'm not very good. I you tried to catch
0: a wave. I asked because of this. Um, catching a wave is in part reading the ocean and seeing how the swells are moving. Um, and uh, and we'll close out this podcast in mean, a minute. I appreciate your time, Michael. Um, it would be remiss not to bring up the R word in recession. And I mentioned surfing because you worked in a White House that experienced a recession. The recession you went through was about eight months, I think, in length?
1: Yeah, it's eight or nine months. It mm-hmm. was mild by recession standards. Of course, any recession but here's the question, hardship. Michael,
0: you're sitting in the White House, and you and the very bright economists working for you in the White House are studying the economy. Can you forecast a recession?
1: Well, I think you can see risks, and you can see things slowing down. Mm-hmm. But actually, the official data often get revised in hindsight. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's not so easy to forecast. And it's not easy to tell the difference in real time between an economy that's slowing and will rebound from slow growth in a quarter, or two or three, from one that tips into recession and stays there for a while. Right. That's an extremely difficult thing to do. The record of economists, leaving myself aside, I, I, in my public service, uh, unfortunately I was accurate and we forecast a recession before we were in one and mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately it came to pass. But that was the military drawdown, the oil shock from the first Gulf War, right. the credit crunch from cleaning up the savings and loans. It was pretty clear that was going to slow the economy a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think economists' records are not are not great at forecasting these turning points in the business cycle.
0: Right, and you were coming off of about eight years of growth uh, for the Reagan years.
1: That's right. We've had we've had unusually, in post-war history, long expa- se- several long expansions lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, Earlier in, in the post-war period, through the early 80s, you averaged a recession about every five years. And we had long expansion in the 80s, long expansion in the 90s, uh, good expansion in the 2000s, not nearly as long, and a strong, a long expansion, even though the first part of it was anemic, uh, from the Great Recession.
0: Okay, so let's get out on this question, Michael. You look at the economy. We're overdue for a recession here in California for years now. Every spring, Jerry Brown will go out with this budget and say this. It's going to end soon enough. Look at the charges, the history of the matter. And we look nationally. A recession should be on the way at some point. You can't tell me when, but what is your sense as to what is in store for the country? And let's take it over the next year since it's a podcast yeah, about Donald I Trump. Think,
1: you know, I think the base case has to be slower growth mm-hmm. for all the reasons I mentioned. Slow growth abroad, uh, recession in some places among our trading partners, and trade is a positive. Some game mm-hmm. people benefit when they trade to, with each other number one, and also uh, some of the uh, basic issues here. We have the the tariffs and trade war issue uh, basically uh, offsetting some of the gains from the corporate reduction and reform and the less regulation. We have um, probably had a bit of a bump from that early on, and that's fading. Uh, but it should continue to help a, a bit with growth over the long term from the corporate reform. So, all those things suggest that um, the base case outlook is slow growth over the next year. Mm-hmm. And I think if the slow growth continues and unemployment doesn't rise much, stays pretty low, that's a strong thing for Trump's reelection. Uh, if the economy tips into recession, uh, I think that will make it much harder for. President to be reelected. I would say there's maybe a one in four, one in three chance of a recession between now and the election at most, mm. but it's not zero. It's for certain it's not zero.
0: One to four, one to three at the most.
1: Yeah, but, but remember, you know, every four times, one in yes. four means it happens once, and when it happens, it happens. Yes. So it's not that because it's less than 50%, it won't happen. It's just that. Right. The base case is we'll grow more slowly uh, than, we, than the 3% we've enjoyed over much of the uh, Trump presidency. Uh, but uh, the, the bigger risk is on the downside than on the upside from that.
0: Okay, final question, I promise, Michael. Uh, one thing I admire very much about you is you think in a lot of directions at the same time. You are not just following economics. You're studying the folly of high-speed rail in California. You're paying great attention to what Democratic presidential candidates are. You're studying the condition of the United States. You're studying the world condition. What's on your mind right now? Well, my,
1: I've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about what will determine our very long-run economic future, the the economic future we hand to our children and grandchildren a generation from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than just, I mean, I also think about the next few quarters and recession and the Federal Reserve and, uh, and so on, uh, but I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that and the things we need to do to get that, uh, to increase the probability that we will leave uh, a better economy to our children and grandchildren in the future. This is motivated in part by surveys recently that indicate that in the United States and in much of the devel- and advanced world, uh, a large majority of the population believes that their children and grandchildren will not be as well off as they have been. And that's kind of a startling thing you might expect in the midst of a deep recession, not in a fully employed economy. Uh, And there are many reasons for that pessimism. uh, And we don't have time to get into them here. Maybe on a subsequent uh, podcast, we can do that. But I'm trying to figure out what are the, the best policy tools to make sure that we maximize the chance that our children and grandchildren will inherit better opportunities than we've enjoyed.
0: Very good. Well, let's do a podcast on that at some point. And you're traveling overseas soon, so safe travels, my friend.
1: Thanks a lot, Bill. Good to be with you.
0: You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, I heartily recommend that you sign up for Hoover's Daily Report. Which delivers the best work of Dr. Michael Boskin and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. I mentioned Dr. Boskin's very excellent column on the Democratic Policy Proposals. The title of that is A Closer Look at the Left's Agenda, Scientific, Economic, and Numerical Literacy on the Campaign Trail. You can find it by going to hoover.org and going on to Dr. Boskin's personal page where you'll find not just that column, but a lot of his excellent essays. By all means, check it out. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dauer for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.